0: do worship your holy name tonight. We worship you, the God of salvation, the God of creation, and the judge of all the earth. Lord, we thank you that you are a true judge, a right judge, and we can look at this passage we're about to read tonight and see that the punishment was earned. Lord, thank you that you are so kind, that you are so slow to anger, and that that you will do right. Like Abraham says in Genesis 18, with the darkness of Sodom and Gomorrah before him, he says, will not the judge of all the earth do right? And of course you do. Thank you. Thank you for not leaving us in our filth and our darkness and our sin and the brokenness of the world. Thank you that you're going to return and fix it. What a hopeless situation if if we just felt that hey, you know, this is a, a this is a workable model. We'll just keep going in this forever without the hope that you are going to come back and right it. Or thank you Jesus that you are going to return and bring things to an end. And that evil will be cast out of your kingdom forever. And once again, it will be like Eden. We'll get back to the place where you are there, where you are dwelling f- completely fully uh, with us. That the fullness of the life-giving God will be present with us. We await that day with eagerness, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, Aaron. Really appreciate that. Well, tonight, uh, Genesis 3. Okay. Uh, tonight, Genesis 3. So here we go. Um, as we've talked about each week, we, you know, this this title, I've come up with the series, A Land, A Seed, and A Blessing, is because these three things are what are definitive for what God wants to offer humanity, what he has to talk to us about, what he has to provide for us, what he's working on, what he's doing in Genesis, especially. And of course, that plays out throughout the rest of the Bible, but in this book specifically, this is so integral, so key to what's going on. So here we go. I named this sermon, The Presence Lost. You know, Milton has his his famous novel. It's called Paradise Lost. It's about it's a it's a story, a fiction story about this event about leaving Eden. And here it is. Um, I I named it the Presence Lost because God is dwelling with people. It's it's exactly what God intended for humanity. He'd walk among them, and and they're cast out of His presence. That's the death that's talked about, ultimately, is they're kicked out of being present with life himself, right? The, the 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 God of the universe who is life. And that presence is lost. And we'll see what happens that un- unravels everything uh, tonight as we talk about that. But this is where we're going, remember? We talked about that. For ever since this moment, what God has been trying to restore is him dwelling fully in the presence of of his people. Everything God does from this moment on in the Bible, Genesis three on, all the way to Revelation twenty two, is about this. How can His presence dwell with His people? All right, Genesis three. Let's read it. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There's a lot to unpack in this story. And of course, the interesting thing is it opens up the narrative with this serpent who's never appeared on the scene before. He's, he's talked about as a, as a creature, a beast of the field, which we talked about last week. Probably means just a wild animal versus domesticated animal, right? The the cattle is the term they use for domesticated. So he's a wild animal. He's a serpent. And and he just shows up. And it's weird because he's never mentioned before this. He's never talked about. He just shows up on the scene and it's kind of treated like normal. (laughs) Like Okay, here's the serpent. And, And we'll talk in a little bit about the identity of the serpent, which we all kind of know. Um, but it'll. It's it's interesting when you think about how long it takes for the identity of the serpent to be revealed scripturally, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. But this this animal <laughs> shows up right, and so it talks to Eve, and it, it has a question for her. It's saying it, it, the serpent is 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 crafty. It's he's shrewd. He's he's actually oddly enough, he's wise. He's cunning. He's got an intellect about him. He's got a smarts about him um, that makes him. Uh, Just, he has the ability to manipulate and deceive. And we're going to see that played out here as we read the rest of the passage. So he's saying, uh, isn't it it that God said you couldn't eat from any of these trees? Is that what he said? Whatever the case, he clearly knows about God's command to some extent. He knows there's been a command. He knows that something has happened that has been said specifically to Adam and Eve that they're supposed to do or not do, and and what they should engage in and what they should not engage in. And so she says to him, she replies, she says, no, 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 we can eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden. It's just there's this one tree in the middle of the garden, and we can't eat from that one. The Lord told us not to eat from it or touch it, or we will surely die. Now, a lot of people make a big deal out of the fact she adds, or touch it. That's actually not in the original command, right? The Lord says, you shall not eat from the fruit of the tree, for if you do, you will die. But God never says anything about touching the tree or dealing with the tree or handling it or anything. And I've I've seen a lot of scholars make a big deal out of this. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I I don't think there's any big important point to say about adding touch it. I think it's probably just being safe, kind of like what we talked about, about protecting the name of God when we talked about that last week, right? Right? They're probably just being wise. Like, hey, it's probably better we never go near it. Like, why even risk the temptation? Now, it won't kill them if they touch it, but it's probably just smart. Let's not, let's not risk it, right? Let's not go near it. I don't think there's much to be made from that point, but some people do. Um, and the serpent says to her three things here, right? The serpent says to her in response, you're surely not going to die, Don't you know God's holding out on you? He knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He he gives three things that's going to happen as a result of this. He says, you're not going to die. God said they were going to die. He says, you're not going to die. Your eyes are going to be opened and you're going to be like God. Three things. Three things. We're going to have to evaluate those three claims as we walk through the narrative, okay? Those are the three claims he makes. We're going to have to reassess them by the end of the narrative. What happens to those three claims? Are they going to die? Or are they not going to die? Are their eyes opened? Are they going to be like God? Those three things, knowing good and evil. Okay. Verse 6, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Okay, at the beginning of this, it says, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and a delight to the eyes. Now, most of us, when we read this, in English, we read it and we don't connect it because we're we're probably not paying attention to what's come right before it. But we read this and we think, wow, this tree is amazing. It's a tree that's good for food. It's beautiful, right? It's a delight to look at. Man, that's wonderful. What a great tree. Like, why would God make it so tempting? Right? It's it's wonderful for food. It's delightful to see. It's desirable for wisdom. Why would God make this tempting, beautiful tree? The odd thing is that if we've been paying close attention to Genesis 1 and 2, it's actually saying the exact opposite thing. It's not saying that this tree is exceptional. It's saying that this tree is just like every other tree. If you read Genesis 2... Verse 2-9, Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. See, her assessment of the tree is not to say, What a beautiful tree! I've got to have it! It's actually the opposite. What's the big deal about this tree? Why would God make a restriction about this tree? It's just like every other one. If they're all the same, what's so special about this tree that I can't eat from it? She makes that assessment. She says, it's, it's just like any other tree, but, but what's unique about it? It'll make me wise. Well, it's just like every other tree, and it's desirable for wisdom. Why not eat from it? She makes a judgment. She makes a judgment on whether it will be good or bad for her to eat and why that's so significant why that's so significant is because i think this is the definition of sin i think we get a definition of sin in this moment i'll try to prove it to you maybe you'll disagree with the definition but i'll tell you what my definition is the definition of sin in my opinion is self-definition self-definition of good and evil the heart of sin. I've heard it said many different ways. Some people say, well, the heart of sin is pride, right? Or the heart of sin is putting yourself in God's place. Or And those are valid. I'm not saying those aren't valid. But I think the best way to describe it, the best way to think about it, that helps us understand what's going on. What's the, the process of sin? It's self-definition of good and evil. If you want to know why our world looks the way it does today, the key factor that is... Ongoing is we are determining what is good and evil. Humans are determining what is good and evil. Now, obviously, in the narrative, who determines what is good and evil? God does. It's God who is supposed to be the one who determines what is good and evil and defines what is good and evil. So, yes, it's true. It is usurping a a role meant for God to determine what is good and evil. It's it's a moral autonomy, right? It's it's a moral choice. What's going on with this language of knowing good and evil is, is saying that they can determine it. They can define it. So when it says this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what it's saying is it gives them wisdom, really, but that wisdom disconnected from God is the earthly wisdom, in quotes, that lets you determine this is good and this is bad. And you're not listening to God's What did God say? He said, don't eat from it, because on the day you do, you will surely die. God's made a definition of what this is. And when the serpent even pushes on that the slightest bit, no, no, that's not what it is. That's not what it is. That's the deception piece, right? There is a deception piece. She's deceived by, by pushing against God's definition. That's what the serpent does. He offers a different interpretation. But at the end of the day, who's the one determining about the tree? It's actually Eve. And I didn't, this is literally, when I was studying this week, It's is the first time I've ever seen this. But I think it solidifies the point. The point is this. Woman saw that the tree was good. Have we heard that language before? The entirety of Genesis 1 is God seeing and speaking that it is good. He makes light and God saw that it was good. He makes the expanse, the heavens, and he saw that it was good. He makes the dry land. He saw that it was good, and on and on and on. Genesis 3, the woman saw that the tree was good. She's making a determination that what God said, this is wrong, this is bad, don't eat from it. She sees it and says, no, it's good. She defines it as good. And so she hasn't even acted yet. Has she eaten of the fruit at this point? No, she's just assessing it. Sin has been birthed. It hasn't taken hold of her. It has not overcome her yet. But if you want to know where sin is birthed, it's here. She's made the assessment and said that it is good. What God said was bad, she has said it is good. She has not acted out the action that will be the sinful action that will make sin overtake all of humanity she's not acted that out yet but it was birthed here in her assessment that is the that's the core for me and and like think societally what is more prevalent today than the idea of defining ourselves literally ourselves we can define who we are we can define what is right we can define what is bad. We can choose what to shame, what to honor. We do not look for any outside authority, any outside source to tell us anything. We look to ourselves to determine what is good and evil. That's the heart of sin. It's the heart of sin. Okay? The opposite of sin, of course, just to mention, is, is to trust God. What's the opposite of sin? It's faith. The opposite of sin is faith. It's trusting God's definition of things. It's when God says a word and he says, this is what it is, and this is what that is. It's that trusting that is faith. Saying, I, I, you know, maybe I don't even understand what God is saying. Maybe it doesn't even make sense to me. But I trust his definition more than I trust my own. That's faith at that its core. Cool. So go on. This language, the eyes of both of them were opened. Who said their eyes were going to be opened? The snake. He's, he's got one. He's got one so far. Their eyes are opened. What do they see when their eyes are opened? They see that they were naked. And they made themselves loin coverings. Here's the thing, Eve here's what the serpent says, your eyes are going to be open, and she interprets it as a good thing. When their eyes are open, what do they see? They see that they're naked. Do they make another self-definition here? They do. Read Genesis 2:25. The end of the chapter of Genesis 2. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. When their eyes are open and they see their nakedness, they determine that as bad. In the same way they determine the tree as good, they see their nakedness and they determine it as bad. Again, they're not trusting God's definition. They were naked and were not ashamed. Their eyes are opened. They see themselves as naked and they try to cover up their shame. Because they've interpreted it shamefully. That was not God's definition. God created them this way, and they weren't ashamed. (coughs) And of course, they interpret it as shameful, which it wasn't. It wasn't. Now, today, after Genesis 3, it does become shameful. Humanity, it does become shameful in humanity. And in fact, God will even tell the priest, don't approach my altar naked. Like, you need to make sure you're covered. You need to be clothed when you come before my altar. It's interesting. Okay, So they they determine this as a bad thing. They cover themselves up. And here's the other thing. We talked about this last week. Man and his wife being naked and not ashamed is a symbol of the fact that they're in perfect community. It shows that there is nothing hidden between them. There is complete openness, complete vulnerability between them. What's it mean that they see they're naked and that they cover themselves? Their relationship's broken. Their relationship's broken. This is the moment we see, when their eyes are opened, that human relationships are forever altered. Because even the man and his wife look on each other in shame. Right, Two people, Adam and Eve. We know they were literally made for each other. Eve is literally made as the helper, the companion. And they react to each other in shame. Human relationships are completely undone at this moment. That will never be something that is restored uh, in perfection until Jesus fixes it for us. Now we can attempt it, thank God, right? That's what the church is called to do right to, to be vulnerable to to really lay yourself bare in a lot of real ways to each other and and build each other up right and not shame each other and yet this is a reality we're going to have to deal with until Jesus comes and fixes it okay verse 8 They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? The man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And the Lord said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you to not eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. All right, the man and his wife, Adam and Eve, they hide among the trees of the garden. They, they hide themselves. And just like we saw a moment ago about human relationships being broken, Here we see that human and God relationships are forever altered, too. The idea that man would hide from his creator, his closest friend, the God who literally just walked the animals before him to see what he would name them, to see if he could find a helper who put him to sleep and drew a helper from his side. The man hides from that God who's provided everything he needed man hides from his presence why well because the relationship is torn between god and, and humanity again this is a reality we still live with today this is why jesus is necessary because the relationship between god and man is undone and the lord asks this beautiful question the seeking god God knows where he is. This is not just God needing to figure it out like he doesn't know where Adam's at. This is not like God being less than omniscient and like, what, where did he go? I just left him here a minute ago. Like, like, did I misplace him or something? No, this is God inviting Adam into relationship. This is God inviting Adam to respond to him. This is actually God inviting the confession. Where are you? What is Adam going to do? I mean, he could, he could keep hiding. He could pretend he's not there. Or he can come forward and make himself known. What's he do? The thing that's so sad about this scene to me is that Adam actually has a really good confession to start. It's actually really beautiful. It's poignant. He says these four things. He says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. I don't think you could lay out a better confession than that to start. He explains what he needs to explain to God. He says these things. It's a good model for confession, actually. He says the situation. What happened? What happened? I heard the sound of you in the garden. He explains what this stimulus was that led him to do something. He says, this is the situation, God. I heard the sound of you in the garden. And then he tells how he felt. He tells his feelings. Here's how I felt. I was afraid. I heard the sound of you. Here's what happened. And this is what it made me feel. I was scared, God. Then he gives his identity statement who I am. I was afraid because I was naked. I was afraid because I was naked. I just had this experience with my wife, and and I I, I was ashamed to even be seen like I am. And and now here I am, and I'm going to face my Creator. And I'm naked. It's who I am. Don't you know, God? That's who I am. And then he gives his action or reaction, what he did in response to it. So I hid myself. I heard the sound of you in the garden. It's what happened. I was feeling afraid because I am nakedness. I, I, that's who I am. So I went and hid. That's what I did. It's a great confession. The thing that's so poignant about pointing out this confession is because we see that God is the greatest counselor. God's a great counselor because what does he do in response to this confession? He doesn't look at Adam and go like, oh, that situa- you've totally misinterpreted the situation of what happened. He doesn't go, well, I'm sorry you were feeling afraid, Adam. That's really sad. It's sad that you were feeling afraid. He doesn't say, well, you know what? If you had just gotten your act together and and acted in a different way, if you'd reacted differently, Adam, it all would have been okay. No, what does God do? He cuts right to the heart of Adam. He goes to the identity statement. He cuts out all of this stuff and says, we need to deal with who Adam thinks he is. He says, who told you that you were naked He cuts right to the identity. This is Adam saying, I was naked. That's who I am. I'm ashamed and broken and all these things. God says, who told you that? What is God saying? I didn't tell you that. It was not me who defined you as naked. It's not me who told you to be ashamed of it. 225. He had just said the man and his wife were naked and were not ashamed. God saying, who told you that? And and what's the only logical conclusion God can come to? Did you eat of the tree that I commanded you not to? Okay. Adam's done really good so far in his confession. And then what's he do next? He he bungles the whole thing. He's done great. If he could, and this is speculative, I recognize that. Who knows what would have happened if Adam had just said, I hate the fruit, God. I hate the fruit. But his heart has been altered. And he doesn't, does he? No, what he does is he does what humans love to do. We we blame shift. He says, It's the woman. <laughs> God, it wasn't me. I wasn't gonna do it. The woman you gave me. It's someone else's fault. It wasn't me. If you wouldn't have had this woman put here, I, I, I probably would have never done it. It's the woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me from the tree, and then I ate. Like, oh, it's a, it was an accident. If, too bad for Eve. This is the perfect helper that God created for him. Obviously, as tragic, she led him astray, of course. But ultimately, Adam had a responsibility to choose how he was going to act. Himself, And his instant response is to shift the blame to Eve. Not take responsibility for what he himself had chosen to do. So the Lord God turns to Eve. He turns to the woman and says, What is this you have done? And the woman, she does the same thing, doesn't she? What was the serpent? The serpent deceived me and I ate. If you hadn't made snakes, I never would have eaten. If he would not have said anything to me, I wouldn't have been deceived and it would have been okay. There was no willingness on my part. It's his fault. The exact same thing. The exact same thing that Adam has just done. And here's the irony of the situation that has just transpired. If we have been paying attention while we read Genesis 1 and 2... This is a complete inversion of the order of authority that has been laid out in Genesis 1 and 2. Adam listens to the voice of his wife in place of God, and Eve listens to the voice of the snake. The snakes are the animals class, right? Woman above the snakes in terms of authority, above animals, the perfect helper. And Adam, who claimed authority over Eve by naming her woman, he's supposed to be the authority. And instead it's a complete inversion. The serpent tells Eve what to think and she submits to that. Eve tells Adam what to think and he submits to that in in place of what God has told them. Is a complete inversion of the order that God has just ordered in Genesis 1 and 2. The serpent doesn't get a chance to respond, does he? While, while we're here, now we can talk about the, the identity of this serpent. And of course, we all know that that the Bible tells us this is Satan, isn't it? It's the devil. It's the devil. The question is: do you know where scripture actually says that explicitly? You know how long it takes for us to get to Genesis 3? From Genesis 3, we have this serpent. You know how long it takes in scripture to get to identifying the serpent with this with the devil, with Satan? Revelation 12. This is so key to us. Like, we this is so obvious to us because it's been just, you know, it's been drilled into us that the serpent is the devil. It's the last book of scripture where that's the only place in Scripture that explicit connection is made is Revelation 12, 9, right? Revelation 12, 9. And the great dragon was thrown down. And of course, Revelation's been talking about this dragon, right? The great dragon was thrown down. He's the serpent of old, Genesis 3, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. That's the first time those two identities are put together. That doesn't mean they weren't interpreting it before that. It just means the only place in Scripture we explicitly get that connection is in Revelation 12. Think about that. That's why theology is so important. We're spanning the gamut of the books to get these connections. From one end of the Bible to the other to understand who this serpent is, what its identity is. John tells us in Revelation 12, 9. Right. so the serpent of old, this is Satan. This is Satan. And we kind of have to think about it through two levels, right, as we're, as we're contemplating this, because the narrative has some things to say, like I just told you about the authority structure, that really relate to the serpent being of the animal class. But we also know that theologically, this is representing the devil. This is the devil himself coming to, to tempt and deceive. This is spiritual warfare language. Right? Like we talked about for so many weeks. Okay. Here we go. Excuse me. So, what does the Lord say to the serpent? Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle. And more than every beast of the field, on your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. This language, a lot of times I think we just think of it like other kind of mythical stories from different cultures. Where it's like, oh, this is how snakes lost their legs. Like, that's the story. Like, Oh, yay! Like, well, you learned how snakes got, like, they used to have legs like lizards, and then God said this, and their legs fell off or something. (laughs) That's not the point. That's actually not the point of this language. What is eating dust representative of? You're going to be defeated. You're going to be in the ground. You're going to be humiliated. Right? Another one bites the dust. Right? That's the language of this passage. You're going to crawl on your belly and eat dust. You will be just wretched, destroyed. You're despicable. You're going to crawl around in the dirt. That's his curse. One day we know that that God's going to destroy Satan. It's continued on, right? Verse 15, and I will put enmity. There's going to be strife between you and the woman. Between you, serpent, and the woman. And between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, like we talked about, about the animals. At one level, this is just... Another sign of what we talked about. Not only is human and human relationship broken, not only is human and God relationship broken, human and animals relationship is broken. Right? There's going to be strife between the natural world, other living things, and humanity. And that's true. That's the way it is. If you ever wonder in the like Isaiah visions of what what the the new heavens and new earth will be like what language do they love to use the wolf will lie down with the lamb right the the child will put his hand in the snake's nest and will come out unharmed why does it use that language because animal and human relationships are broken and the idea of perfection, of having life be ordered right again, is that we'd be in tune with the natural world again. No longer would we fight with each other, would we destroy each other, would we hate each other. We'd be in harmony. In The biblical word is shalom, right? There would be peace. From one end of the earth to the other, there would be peace. Even between man and the animals, Okay, so that's at one level. If we think about the serpent as that animal piece that, that that's meant to represent in the story, but at another level, right, at the level of this as Satan, as the enemy, like the greatest enemy mankind could have, there's another point going on here, and I'm sure you've heard this before. This verse, Genesis three fifteen, is called the Protoevangelium, the first gospel. That's what Proto-Evangelium means. The first gospel. It's the first time in the Bible that we hear about what Jesus is going to do. What Messiah is going to accomplish. And what it's saying here is this. Eventually, the snake and the woman are going to come to... Uh, that, that fight will come to a head. It's going to come to a point where there will be this, this constant battle between your offspring and, and his offspring, right? The woman's offspring and, and the serpent's offspring. They're, they will be constantly at, at odds. And one day, your seed, and thus talking about the snake there, and her seed are going to come to this battle. And the, the seed of the woman will bruise you, serpent, on the head. And you, serpent, shall bruise him on the heel. That's cross-language. It's saying that the serpent and the man, the serpent and the man, this child, this offspring of the woman, they're going to, right now, as as opaque as this is, they're going to defeat each other. They're going to defeat each other, right? The the man's going to crush your head, serpent. But he's going to, the serpent, it's going to bite you on the heel. And of course, this is, what's the most notorious thing about snakes? They're poisonous. (laughs) Biting you on the heel is not just like, ow, oh, that hurt. That's not the point. It's an asp. It's a viper. It's it's an adder. It's going to kill you. The point is, they're both going to die. That's language of Jesus, isn't it? And at this point, we don't have the rest of the Bible filling out our images, right? We don't have the rest of Scripture helping us understand. But even here, Jesus' death is being alluded to. This early. Snake, you're going to get crushed. Satan, you're going to be defeated. But it's going to cost the woman's seed's life too. They're both going to die. But resurrection isn't mentioned here. We haven't had all that filled out. But even this early on in Genesis 3.15, the Messiah, we already know he's going he's to be a dying Messiah. He's going to get bit on the heel by the serpent, and it's going to kill him. But, but the seed, the offspring, they're going to crush the head of the serpent too. What a, beautiful, what a beautiful reality that we can look back on now and understand and see it even here. Then he turns to the woman and he said to her, I'm going to greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, when God turns to the woman and he gives her her punishment... He says a, a kind of cryptic line, and it's it's been a debate of of theology ever since. Is what is this desire? What is this? You're going to have a desire for your husband piece that doesn't make sense. The childbirth piece we get pretty well. <laughs> I think most women, especially if they're older, they've had some kids, they they understand it. Like it it makes sense of their experience pretty well, right? But what is this second piece? And I've heard some different interpretations. One interpretation is that actually this is just God saying how things are going to be, how, how it's intended. You know, you're going to be your desire. You're going to have desire for him. Maybe that's a sexual desire. Maybe it's some other kind of desire. And, and he's going to rule over. He's supposed to have authority. We actually saw that earlier, right? He's supposed to have authority over you. So this is just reinstating that. Right? He's going to rule over you. Right? And that's just God saying how things are going to be. Here's the problem with that. It makes no sense of the context at all. Why, in the middle of punishment for serpent, punishment for woman, punishment for man, would he say, like, and by the way, this is okay. This is good. This is how it's supposed to be. That makes no sense to me. But it's an interpretation I've heard. I'll give you my interpretation. Whatever you interpret this verse to mean, you have to understand Genesis 4 uses the same Language about sin and Cain. Look at these verses. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. and pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And then God speaking to Cain before he's murdered his brother. He says to Cain, if you do not do well, Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. This this is the same word in Hebrew, mashal. Rule, they translate it different. I I can't stand when they do that, but they do. (laughs) Right? Rule and master are the same Hebrew word, mashal. Mashal. He will rule over you, you must master it. You must rule it. It's the same Hebrew word. Clearly, these are parallel. It uses desire, it uses rule. Right? They're meant to be taken and understood similarly. Here's my interpretation. I think what this is speaking of here in Genesis three sixteen is this there will be a desire to for women and I think it reflects this sin in its desire for Cain to to master, to enslave, to take over. Man to separate themselves, to 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 take authority over them. And you will rule and he will rule over you, or you must master it, means that well in, in Cain's case it means you've got to combat it, you've got to dominate it, you've got to subjugate sin under you rather than letting it rule over you. Well, in here, God is speaking about a reality we know all too well, which is How often men dominate and subjugate women. That is true across pretty much all cultures and all time. For all of human history. Women and children are are abused. They're taken advantage of. They're, They're spoils of war. They're all of these things. And what God is saying here, I don't think this is actually punishment I don't think this is God saying, here's the way I'm going to make it. I'm saying, I think he's saying, this is what the brokenness has led to. You, who were meant to be the perfect helper, meant to be the perfect companion, are going to constantly desire to take your, your husband's place, to take, your, to take the authority that man has. And yet, he's going to crush you. He will rule over you. He will dominate you. And I, I see that pattern. That makes sense of the world to me. It is all too often that men who know that they have power use it to ruin women. I, I, how many countless stories could we hear of those accusations if we just opened the newspaper literally this day? All over the place. all over, And those are the ones that we hear of, right? How many countless others are there? I think that what God is saying here is what I ordered to be a certain way for man to have authority and use it well, use it godly, and for, for the woman to be the, the perfect helper, both of those things are going to be disordered. They're going to come out in a very evil way. What God intended them to be, they're not going to be. He's saying this is what it's going to look like. And I think we've, we, we see that. I think, that. I think our experience confirms that interpretation for all of human history, really. And we'll see it later on even in Genesis, right? Okay. Then to Adam he said, now God turns to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. And that just doesn't mean generally, it's not like, men never listen to the voice of your wife. Hey, God says so, Genesis 3, 317. No, that's not the point. It's because you listen to the voice of your wife in place of me. I had told you this was right. Your wife told you this was right. And you chose her interpretation over mine. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. What a heartbreaking passage. Adam's punishment is two things that the work that was supposed to be a joy that God set him in the garden to cultivate it, to work it. We're called to work. But the work that was supposed to be a joy and a pleasure to us is going to be a burden. It's going to be tiresome. It's going to be a toil. And death itself is unleashed. You were dust, taken from the dust, and to dust you will return. But even in here, there's mercy. There's mercy. Cursed is the ground. What's interesting is we hear two curses in this passage. Who's cursed? The snake is cursed. And the ground is cursed. Man and woman are not cursed. The Lord does not curse the man or the woman. Why? Well, I'll tell you why I think. Because he already blessed them. Back in Genesis 2, back in Genesis 1... He says, it says, the Lord blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. God doesn't curse what He's blessed. He blesses man and woman and He will not curse them, despite their disobedience, despite their sinfulness. He will not curse them. And what's that mean? I, You know, the most basic definition of blessing and cursing is that to bless something is, is to call it to success, to call it to to fruition, to, to to be, you know, multiplied, like he says, to make it fruitful and good and, and make it work well. And what's the opposite of that curse is, is that it will be hard, it will be miserable, it will be, uh, you'll have to eke it out. It will, it's, it's not going to be successful. It'll be hard and, and, and the reward will be small, right? Like, it's, it's they're polar opposites. And of course, man and, and, man and woman, are, they're blessed. Humanity is blessed. And we see their fruitfulness, right? We're going to get to the genealogies next. After the, after the story of Cain and Abel, we're going to get to the genealogies. They're fruitful, and they multiply because God has blessed them to do so. And yet the ground is cursed. The serpent is cursed. The thing that's so sad to me about the punishments too, we, you know, God's setting all these things in order at the beginning of the Bible. And if you look at both punishments, they both strike right at the heart of who man and who woman are. What's the thing about childbirth? It's because at the heart of women is this mothering, this nurturing, it's being a wife and a mother. And and that role that women are called to have, it's going to be hard. And so too with Adam, he's called to be a provider. He was meant to cultivate and work it and provide and his his penalty is what? His work's going to be hard. And that it's going to cost him to actually work the ground from which he came to make provision for his family. God has provided everything for them. Everything was taken care of in the garden, right? It was perfect. God, man was still called to work it, but it was easy and light. And now... God's like, no, you're going to have to work hard to provide just a little. You're going to have to work hard to make something come of this. No longer will it just be easy provision like I've laid out before you in the garden. No, the ground is cursed because of what you've done. And you'll work it till death takes you. Verse 20. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, in Hebrew it's Chava. Eve means life or living. He names her life or living because she would be the mother of all who were living. So he names her living. And then the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. But then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. "'knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand "'and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. "'Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden "'to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. "'So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden "'he stationed the cherubim cherubim in the flaming sword, "'which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life.'" We'll start here. I'm going to do this out of order because I want to draw some points together. Here, behold, the man has become like one of us. Oh, we got to assess that language again. Who said they were going to become like one of them? The serpent did. Mm-hmm. God knows you're going to become like one of them. You're going to become like him. Now God admits it. They've become like one of us. How did they become like one of us? And, and if we talked about the us a few weeks ago, right? This idea of God and, and the heavenly court, right? The gods of the Old Testament, the angels, these, these spiritual beings. Right? He's become like one of us. What does he mean that he's become one, like one of us? They have moral autonomy. That they're going to start making determinations of their own of what is good and what is evil. And to prevent them from taking from the tree of life and being stuck in this decrepit condition forever, the Lord's going to prevent that. So that they will not be stuck in their misery and that he might redeem them. It's going to take some work. It's going to take some work. Okay, so now that we've seen this, we have to assess what the serpent said. He said that you're not going to die he said, You're going to have your eyes opened and you're going to become like God. Okay? Their eyes were opened. They became like God, at least in this sense of moral autonomy. And they didn't die, at least by our definition of physical death, did they? The Lord said, On the day you eat from it, you will die. If you're just reading that narrative, it sounds like, hey, the serpent was right. The serpent was right. But, but I think what we have to learn from that is that everything went awry, even though that sounded like the serpent was right. What do we make of that? What do we make of that? I think what we make about it is this. Even truth can be used to deceive sometimes. It can be used to manipulate. Their eyes were opened, but it wasn't anything like what they expected. It wasn't anything of the good that they hoped would come from it. They became like God, and it cost them everything, because they wanted to make their own determinations of what was good and evil. And, and the one thing that I think, I, I actually do think we can probably just call straight up a lie is the death piece, because actually they do die, don't they? Now it's not the physical way that we're all accustomed to thinking of, but they're cast out of the presence of life itself, which is Mm -hmm. the Lord's presence. The presence of life is being in God's presence. They're cast out from it, and so they face death. They face death because they're sent out from life. They do die. They do die. It may not be a physical death, but that comes. That still comes. But in the day they ate from it, they did surely die. The Lord was right. Because it cost them being in the presence of the life-giving God. But I think we have to reckon with the fact that the serpent uses some true things to manipulate, to deceive that's true. You can use truth wrongly. You can use truth wrongly. We have, to be make, we have to make sure, we have to be careful about using the truth in the right way, in, in a God-honoring way, in a way that brings glory to Him, that doesn't deceive others. Last thing I want to talk to you about is a confirmation of what we talked about last week there's there's still this temple language remember we talked about last week that Eden was the temple and we know it's the temple because it's where God's presence was just like the temple just like the tabernacle and we followed these moments there's three more pieces of evidence here at the end of this account that tell us it was it was functionally the temple and that the Israelites reading this when this was was written they would have assumed it was tabernacle language One clothed. This is the word lavash in Hebrew. Lavash is used uh, generally to mean put on clothes. But what's interesting is in the Pentateuch, it's almost exclusively used to talk about Moses putting clothes on Aaron and the priests. Remember we talked about cultivate, work and keep it. That was priestly language. This word that talks about God, Clothing them, it's saying he's putting on their priestly garments. He's putting on their tunics. He's clothing them. The thing that's interesting is we we look at this as a moment of grace, and surely it is. Surely it is a a moment of grace in which they're naked and they're ashamed, and the Lord clothes them. That That is graceful. The odd thing is that we often miss the fact that the fact that they wear garments is a reminder of their sinfulness. It's a reminder of their sinfulness before God. What was once naked and unashamed is now judgment in clothes. And that's something we miss. And that's that's a reminder. And that's very priestly too, isn't it? When we get the tunics put on the priest, what's their job? It's to go sacrifice before the Lord, a constant reminder of the sinfulness of the people. Even their clothes themselves harken back to this story when they think about this. But the first great sin is what caused them to be clothed. Okay, here's the second. The Lord sent them out, And at the east of the garden, he's stationed. Why the east? That seems like such a random thing. Why the east of the garden? Uh, Gardens, I don't know if you've ever been in a garden or or like a a wilderness oasis type of place. You can enter from pretty much any direction, right? You can walk from any place and walk through the trees and get in. You know, unless you're talking about a fenced place or something. What's unique about the east, the entrance of the tabernacle, the entrance of the temple, the entrance of all of the holy spaces of Israel face east. They face east. The entrance is always pointed toward the sunrise. They point east. What's this point? What he's placing at the east is to prevent them from re-entering the direction that would be the entry for the tabernacle or the temple. This is, this is language. It's meant to allude to tabernacle. He puts it on the east to stop them from coming back because that's the way you enter from the east. Lastly, cherubim. Cherubim show up, it actually shows up in Scripture quite a few times, but the vast majority of places that the word cherubim shows up, cheruvim in Hebrew, is in three locations. In the second half of Exodus, Exodus kind of 25 and on, in 1 Kings, near the beginning, and in Ezekiel, the later chapters of Ezekiel. Those are the vast majority of references to the cherubim, what connects those three places in Scripture. Tabernacles being built in the last half of Exodus. The temples being built by Solomon in 1 Kings. And at Ezekiel, what's happening at the end of Ezekiel? The vision of the third temple. The vision of the third temple. Why? Because the cherubim are always where God's presence is. Where does the cherubim show up? In those sections I just mentioned, in in Exodus and, and in 1 Kings and Ezekiel. Whenever the ark is made, they put cherubim on the ark. That cover the mercy seat. And where is the mercy seat supposed to be? It's the place where God's literal presence manifests itself. And the cherubim cover him. They cover his glory from being seen. Right? They, are, they are beings that are meant to, to sheep, and honestly, probably protect us. From the power of his glory, they shield him from view. And so every time in Exodus and in 1 Kings, it's commands. That's why the word's showing up. Make the cherubim that will sit on the ark to cover the mercy seat. And their wings will be stretched out facing each other. And their faces will be towards the mercy seat, looking at where God's literal presence is supposed to dwell so he puts cherubim in the space where God's dwelling, his, his temple, Eden. The cherubim are there. This is all language about God's presence. The tragedy of this is that they can't re-enter. They've lost the presence. What was perfect dwelling with God What was perfect dwelling with God has been lost, seemingly irrevocably. It seems that they have no hope of getting back. And the rest of Scripture unpacks how God can dwell with men. It's why the tabernacle is made. It's why the temple is made. It's why the vision of the third temple happens in Ezekiel. And it's why we're called the temple once the Spirit is is poured out to dwell in us. In some ways, we are living in the Garden of Eden, in, in and of ourselves, the presence of God dwelling in us. We're not yet to the fullness of God. We've got a ways to go. But we've started that in ourselves, the rekindling of Eden, right? Leading towards that. But I don't think we can walk away from this chapter and not see. Here's an example from Exodus 25 of the cherubim. I don't think we can walk away from this chapter and not see it as a major tragedy. It is. It's the most tragic chapter in Scripture. When all was seemed lost, and all Humanity could see was the punishment that was ahead of it. And for many people, I think this is the reality they still live under. All they can see is judgment and punishment and, and meaninglessness before them. No hope, no value, no meaning. The beauty of Jesus is that he opened The veil. It's like walking back into the garden. It's like saying hello to the cherubim on your way in. The veil being torn is us entering into the space where the literal presence of God is, the manifested presence. You know, God's everywhere, but He can manifest Himself in a a unique way, the fullness of who He is in a spot, in a space. We get to walk into that because Jesus tore down the veil. We have to tell people about that. We have to tell them that Genesis three is not where their story is. But there's something beyond that. Because we all too often live in Genesis three.